Good, very good. That's like uh, Billy Joel and uh, a few of the Beach Boys in the background when they start on the... I would like to hear them sing uh, Barbara Ann, actually. I think they do that very, very well. Uh, but probably not here. We'd have to go off campus to do it, I'm sure. I actually wanted to come here clothed and in my right mind I wanted to uh, dress somewhat normally um, but I was not allowed to come without looking like yet another boring chapel speaker well, a la here I am. But anyway, that's fine. I'm very glad to be back. I'm glad you came back. I suppose you have no option in it. I, otherwise, uh, so I ought not to be gratified by your return. Um, but I, I, I'm glad to be here. Our subject is what? Okay, three of you remember that we're dealing with uh, spiritual fitness, which is super. We're basing it in um, the verses in 1 Timothy chapter 4, especially verse 8. The paraphrase of the verse which reads, Physical fitness has a certain value, but spiritual fitness is essential both for this life and for the life to come. Incidentally, to the Mexican group, Buenos Dias. That's the only thing I know how to say. Um, and if you need more help than that, you, I, can't, I can't do it. Now, what I would like to do is just pause for a moment and, uh, and pray with you, if you would just bow with me in prayer. Father, I pray that you will take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and help us to think clearly. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I said that I would use my three concluding points from uh, last uh, Monday as my introduction this morning. And so I'll just... Uh, be true to that and I want to begin by giving you three barriers uh, to spiritual fitness uh, the first barrier is laziness laziness uh, the Proverbs uh, have much to say about laziness let me give you a couple of quotes I went past the field of the sluggard past the vineyard of the man who lacks judgment thorns had come up everywhere the ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. Lazy people will never rise to their potential of any kind of fitness uh, and especially spiritual fitness. Lazy people in relation to their Christian lives are the masters of refusal. They are expert at excuses. They are tremendous at postponement. And they are aptly described again from Proverbs, it says, As a door turns upon its hinges, so turns the lazy man upon his bed. And the lazy woman too. Now I feel okay about mentioning that this morning as it turns out, uh, because I had to be at Grace Church at 6 a.m. to speak with seminary students. And uh, I, my alarm went off at an ungodly hour in the morning to tell you the truth. Uh, but the challenge of it still presents itself to me. The challenge of procrastination, of always putting things off, 
of always going to be the person I'm going to be tomorrow. Tomorrow I will begin. Tomorrow I will start. Tomorrow will be the day. And you know, if you keep that up, you'll die and fade from view. And you'll leave behind you a pile of things that you were going to do tomorrow. Laziness is a barrier. Secondly, foolishness is a barrier. Foolishness. Ephesians 4.27, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The Lord's will for us is holiness. The Lord's will for us is godliness. The Lord's will for us is spiritual fitness. Foolish enough to believe that the narrow way may be hit upon by chance. Foolish enough to believe that we can lead heedless lives and still lead holy lives. Foolish enough to believe that being in possession of the correct equipment will make me spiritually fit. I remember the first time I got a tracksuit. I was about 12 years old. I'd seen it in a store in Glasgow. I wanted it badly. It was royal blue. It had white stripes down the side, down the side of the arms and down the side of the legs. All the things that this tracksuit was going to do for me. If only I could have that tracksuit, I knew I'd be an athlete with that tracksuit. And I talked my father into it, and he bought me it. And it lay there, and sometimes it hung there, and sometimes it was on here, but it never ever made me an athlete. Because all the equipment in the world cannot produce within us that dimension of self-discipline which is vital for spiritual effectiveness. We mentioned George Verber this morning when I was a student at London Bible College. He came and he spoke at a chapel. He didn't have the opportunity to speak at a chapel like this that was uh, required attendance. But he was going to speak at a special chapel at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Fearful that nobody would show up, the principal gave him the opportunity to stand up and take 60 seconds in the normal chapel hour to announce the fact that he would have an extraordinary chapel at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, everyone's to play soccer and go places and all sorts of things. So Verwer had a great challenge. Equal to it, he was. He stood up. He had 60 seconds. This is what he said. And he shouted, because he always shouts. He says, I'm going to tell you this afternoon at 2 o'clock why 95% of Bible college students will amount to nothing for God. Be there. <laughs> and he said, and the faculty are in the same proportion. You be there. And everybody was back. And his point was clear. It was simply this. Folly will knock us from the pathway of spiritual fitness. Third thing, and this brings me directly into my subject for this morning, is aimlessness. You'll never be spiritually fit if you're lazy. You'll never be spiritually fit if you're foolish. And you'll never be spiritually fit if you're aimless. If you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know where you're going, if you haven't got a general map in, uh, according to which you're making progress. Now, I wonder if you ever watched seven and eight-year-old boys playing soccer. It's, it's an amazing experience. It's a painful experience if one of the boys is your own. Because when you have breakfast together, you talk, you tell him, you know, now son, this is what you do and this is where you go. And remember, you always say, don't bunch around the ball. Don't bunch around the ball. Please don't bunch around the ball. Do you hear me, son? Yes, sir, it's dead. Okay? Then you stand and you watch. 
22 bodies magnetized by this ball. Everywhere the ball goes, 22 little guys go everywhere, all over the place. Crazy! Just like the way Biola plays, you know? If you have the further problem of coaching the team, which I have been foolish enough to do, if you coach the team and you watch it, they play it in quarters in Ohio, because they're trying to learn how to play soccer properly, and they play it for 15 minutes and then they all come off. You take them. You say, now sit down, sit down. You know, get beside me here. Look in my eyes. That's what I always say. Look at my eyes. Then I get their eyes and I say, what were you thinking about when you did that? And they look at one another. Say, did he mention thinking? You mean thinking comes into this as well? You mean it's not just that you go out and with a great surge of adrenaline, you just run anywhere the ball goes, you just kick it in any direction you go. You mean you're supposed to think? Now, we've got an epidemic problem in our area because I met the, I met the, the, the older boys, the ten-year-old boys, in coming home from the travel team. Now, if you make the travel team, you're supposed to be good. I found them in the dairy mart, laughing their little heads off. Oh, I said, you must have won. No, we lost. Oh, you lost. How bad was it? We lost 6-1. I see. And one wee kid says to me, and you know something really funny? What? He kicked the ball in our own goal. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't even know what to say. Except, you know, get serious. Now you say, what are you doing here? You're trying to get a job as a soccer coach? No. And what I want to talk to you about, this is my subject. Although if you offer it to me, I'll consider it. <laughs> Frankly, Mark is so good, I would be prepared to be his third assistant. No, what I want to speak to you about is, is thinking. I want to speak to you about, about your mind in relation to fitness. See, I don't question your devotion. I don't question the devotion of those wee boys. They are devoted. They come to practice. They come early. They run around. You tell them jump. They say how high. They are devoted. They're just clueless. And devotion minus direction equals chaos. So here you are and you've said, okay, I got over the first hurdle. I understood what that fellow said on Monday. I want a heart after God. I want to be spiritually fit. I have crossed the barrier of devotion. Okay, well then let me speak to you this morning about the absolute necessity of not only feeling deeply but about thinking clearly, thinking clearly. Solomon, when he wrote to uh, the readership in Proverbs 92, he said, it is not good to have zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge is a, is a real major problem. Paul writing to the Romans in Romans 10:2, he says of the Jews, they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. They are keen, but they are clueless. Now, you see, a warm-hearted devotion, unless it is allied to a mind that is engaged in biblical truth, will be a real nuisance to you. 
The world outside in a nihilistic generation, in a generation that has embraced nothingness, in a peer group such as your own that is searching for spiritual values, are prepared to listen to what they will describe as your own existential experience. But they're asking questions that demand answers which engage the mind. And so this morning I want to give you three dimensions of the mind which will be existent in the life of the one who is spiritually fit. First of all, the necessity of a convinced mind. Of a convinced mind. Now we're open at 1st Timothy and 2nd Timothy. I don't know if you have your Bibles here, but let, let me just show you how important this is just with a quick scan. 1st uh, Timothy chapter 1 verse 19. He talks to Timothy as a young man. Incidentally, just so you get the picture of Timothy, he probably was about 40 years old, maybe 35, 40. Just a young, just a young guy. I used to think that was old till this year. And, um, and he was in a similar context to the one in which we find ourselves. Because the generation in which Timothy was ministering was a generation marked by confusion. And it was marked by confusion in two key areas. Confusion in the moral realm and confusion in the doctrinal realm. So people had a doctrine that was going everywhere and they had a morality that was going everywhere. And those two things will always go hand in hand. Confused doctrine, abused morality. Abused morality, confused doctrine. And Paul is saying to him as a young man, Now I want you to wage spiritual warfare. I want you to realize the necessity of being fit in your day. And here in verse 19 he says, I want you to be able to fight the good fight holding on to faith and a good conscience. Chapter 3 and verse 9 of 1 Timothy again. He says, I want you in putting people into the servant ministry of your church to make sure that these men must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Chapter 4 and verse 16. Watch your life and watch your doctrine closely. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Now this is a very necessary second part to Monday, because some of you, those of you who were awake on Monday after all that turkey over the weekend, may have gone out of here saying, that's tremendous, I kind of like that. It seemed to have to do with heart and, and with emotion and... Really, I don't think these lectures matter a hill of beans. I think I just need to be more devoted. And who cares if finals are coming up in two weeks? Because really what he was saying was devotion in your heart and your heart and your heart. Hey, you that was part one. Part two is coming. And you better listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The things that you are studying are fundamental to the training of your mind. Your mind matters. That's why the men and the women on the faculty here give themselves unstintingly to the task of your intellectual development. And there is no place for an undevotional theology. 
But equally, there is no place for an untheological devotion. You see? It's not theology, it's not truth in abstract with no heart. But neither is it all heart with no structure. And Paul, in speaking to this young man, system, you better understand the things you've become convinced of, the absolutes of the faith, the very fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ being pivotal in our personal evangelism, the nature of the gospel, all of these things are not up for grabs. They are solid and they are important. Now the essence of it, and with this I'm going to move on to the next point just for your encouragement. The essence of it is contained in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, verse 13 and verse 14 in two verbs. Two verbs. I'm using the NIV, remember, and it comes in the NIV. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of good teaching. And other says Paul, I'm not just giving you general ideas. I'm not throwing out philosophical notions which I want you to embrace vaguely and hold lightly. But Timothy, I'm giving you the absolute fundamentals. The kind of things that you're learning here in the course of Bible. It's not ideas to be debated, it is truth to be received. Now he says, I want you to keep this as the pattern of sound teaching. I want you, Timothy, to be able to speak with clarity and I want you, Timothy, to be able to speak with consistency. I want you to use that which I am giving you in the way that an architect would use the, the final drafted drawings as the, the means for deciding the way in which the structure is built. And so he says to this young man, as you build the structure of your life, first of all, keep what you heard from me as the pattern of sound teaching. Incidentally, and just in passing, if you haven't heard it yet, you will go out into a world where people say things like this to you. You know, especially if you move into um, pastoral ministry at all, they'll say to you, you know, I like the Gospels. I like the Gospels. But I can't stand the Apostle Paul. And they think that somehow you can have Christian faith with the Gospels without the Apostle Paul. You can kind of move him off and over on the side on his own. But you know that's not true, right? You know that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof and for correction and for training and righteousness. You can't have a biblical faith with just the Gospels. It is all that has been given to us and the very words which Paul spoke were as God breathed as those which came from anyone else. And the second verb he gives him is not only keep, but it is the verb to guard. He says, guard the good deposit. Don't let anyone tamper with it. Don't fool around with it yourself. Don't allow others to tear it down. Keep the pattern, guard the deposit. Let me try and illustrate this as I move on. As I studied at a grammar school in England, one of the subjects that I took for ordinary level exams, which you take after five years, um, about at the age of 16, was the subject of music. Music, which I love and about which I know precious little. I was sent to piano lessons as a child to a lady who beat you over the fingers with a ruler and seemingly thought that was a great idea for helping a child of six to just grow with a passionate love for the piano. I had a, I had a passionate hate for that woman and anything to do with pianos. 
But anyway, I went along to that. And by the age of 15, 16, I thought music would be a soft option to get a qualification in. Not at, a, not at an advanced level, but to get me through this stage of schooling. And so I took music. Well, I didn't bargain for all that I got because they introduced us to, I remember, the Clock Symphony by Haydn. They introduced us to uh, the Surprise Symphony by Haydn. They introduced us to some works by Benjamin Britten, which to my uh, poor uh, musical capability are a bunch of atonal nonsense. Uh, but anyway, apologies to all of those who think Benjamin Britten was a great guy. He was a dreadful homosexual, and so was Peter Pierce, who sang most of the solos for his music. I hated it all. But the problem was that I had to study it. Not only that, I never knew, but in the exam, they gave you a score. Just notes on a page, written underneath, where in the world is this from? Which I write underneath. Exactly. You know, uh, or I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Or that's a good question. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? So in the class, he gives out the scores. Here's the score. You take the score. It's a boring gray book with with the, the thing, and he lets it go. Here we go. Franz Joseph Haydn. You know, tick tock, tick tock. It's in there somewhere, seemingly in the clock symphony, which is why they call it the clock symphony. I don't know whether Haydn was pushed for time or whatever when he was writing it, but he probably never even thought about a clock. But anyway, and the music teachers go, okay, now we're following the first violin. Was, oh, good, good. You've you got about ten rows of music, right? Those of you who are music students, we're following the first violin. Good, it must be somewhere on this page. Seven, yes. And now uh, the, the, we've moved to the cello. Oh, yes, sure, great. And now to the French horn. So all I did was I sat and I waited for all the people around me to turn a page. As soon as they turn a page, I turn a page. Yes? There we go. Fine. Now we went to the Royal Festival Hall to see a performance by the London Symphony Orchestra. I am telling you, without a word of a lie, they could have put a complete movement in there and I wouldn't have known a thing about it. I sat there with that book. Every time I felt the spirit move me, I turned another page. I had a clue what was going on. You know why? I didn't know the score. So anybody could have put anything past me, and I wouldn't have had a clue. I'm telling you, young people, if the battle heightens up the way it is in this land towards the end of the 20th century, you better not come out of places like this without you know the score, without you have a convinced mind. Without you know for sure the foundations of the faith, without that your fitness is a fitness based upon doctrinal absolutes and not upon some eerie, fairy notion of spirituality. Now you say, hey, you're getting a bit carried away. I am getting carried away. For the church has always been strong. The church has always stood when its soldiers, when its pilgrims have shown a fitness born first of a convinced mind. I do interviews. I did interviews. I'm sorry, for the London Bible College. People who were far away from London would come and be interviewed by me. And I did this on behalf of London Bible College. And I always gave them an exam at the beginning, which I had to do. So here come all these bright boys and girls. Yes, I want to be a student at London Bible College. I gave them an exam. That knocked them away, first of all. I said, now you sit in a room, you've got 40 minutes to do this. It's not a pass-fail thing. Just relax, enjoy yourself, and let me have it back. 
It had questions in it like how many books are in the Old Testament, how many books are in the New Testament, who was Ezra, who was his uncle, you know, or take away the number you first thought of, elementary stuff. And I would read that stuff, you know, I'm telling you that 90% of them hadn't a clue what was in the Old Testament, what was in the New, what was up and what was down. And I taught the children in my church these last few weeks to say the books of the Bible off by heart. And do you know why I did it? Yeah, you do. To teach my congregation the books of the Bible off by heart. I bet I wouldn't lose many dollars if I stood outside the door in the sunshine here this afternoon and gave a dollar to every person that could say the books of the Bible off by heart. You say to me, who cares about that? It's in the front of the Bible. Yeah, well, you can have the periodic table of the elements stuck up your jersey as well if you want, but it's better if you know it off by heart, right? Don't give me that stuff. Three hours of running, three hours of exercise, three hours for your body. Got to move. A convinced mind. Secondly, a renewed mind. A renewed mind. Where do we go for that? You know. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? I beseech you, beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of spiritual worship. Which is the NIV, the King James Version, the NASV, and every other one stuck in there. And be not conformed to the world, right? But be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. So there's something in our minds. He doesn't say be transformed by embracing an external series of, of principles which we write up on a wall and to which we give allegiance to. But rather he says it's going to be an internal thing. It will be a mind that is engaged. Philip's paraphrase, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Colossians 3, set your minds on things that are above. First Peter, gird up the loins of your mind. We're talking about that this morning. The, the picture is uh, from the, the time when men wore uh, long robes, kind of like uh, kilts. And you people all call them skirts. You know, I, don't do that to Scotsmen, would you? You know, they, they come to me and they say, uh, are you going to wear your dress tomorrow? I beg your pardon. Are you going to wear your skirt tomorrow? They're not skirts. We don't wear skirts. <laughs> They're kilts. Now they had a kind of kilt. Abram wore a kilt. It was a little longer, but it was a kilt. And when he ran, you know, when his wife said, could you shoot down to the corner and get a half gallon of milk? He would get, he didn't leave it all lying down by his ankles. He would pull it up. There were a few layers. He would pull it up. He'd stick it in his belt. And then he ran. Because all that loose stuff hanging around his ankles is bound to trip him up. I'll give you a 20th century illustration. There's a man in our church, one of our elders, who gave testimony in Thanksgiving Eve. I asked him to give testimony because three things happened simultaneously. One, he became an elder in our church. Two, he fell down the stairs and broke his back. And three, he had a heart attack. So it's not funny. I mean, that's not funny. The moral of the story is, if anyone ever asks you to become an elder at the chapel, say, no, no, no. But he gave his testimony the other evening of how God had brought him through the year. And I looked at him as he stood up. And he's a very, uh, a very uh, 
mainline conservative kind of dresser and he always has turnips in his trousers. That's not a vegetable, that's cuffs. You call them cuffs, we call them turnips. Not turnips, turn-ups, okay? And he always has cuffs in his trousers. And I stood and I looked at him and said, he's got no cuffs in his trousers tonight. Something happened to him. And it all came out in his testimony. He said, six months ago, as I was heading down the stairs in my house, I put my heel into the cuff of my pant leg and fell down the stairs and broke my back. And as I lay there, feeling pain, he said, such as he had not felt since a 270 pound guy from some university in the south landed on him, he said, since I, I lay there, I had two thoughts. One, Lord, I am thankful that I am still alive. Help me not to move in case he did something with his vertebrae. And two, if I ever get up off the floor, I'm going to take the cuffs off these pants. He was with the cuffs off his pants. Well, here's what I want to talk to you about. We say you better hurry up, we're nearly done. Yeah, but I want you to get, I want you to get the cuffs off your minds. The cuffs that make you trip up. The folds in your mind where you are stuck. I know some of you are stuck. Because I get stuck, and I have been stuck, and I get stuck with the six inches between my ears. For as a man or a woman thinks, that's what they are. What you think is what you are. Not what you say, what you think. What you are alone with God. What you are in your car. What you are when you're away from your peer group. That's what you are. That's what I am. That's what I am when I stay alone in a hotel. Away from my wife, away from my children. That's me, Alistair Beck. Oh yes, it's me as I speak to you now. But I know, like Murray McShane, that the seeds of every sin known to man dwell within my heart. And I know that I cannot be victorious for a moment, nor for an hour, or ever for a day, but that my mind is continually being renewed. And it is renewed by the Word as the Spirit of God brings it home to us. Which of us can deny this process? Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And it begins in our minds. Let me illustrate it in one dimension and I'm gone from here. Let me illustrate it in the area of sexuality. Because there is probably no greater battleground that many of us face than in that realm. And you only need to look at the number of pastors whose lives have been destroyed and their families are a wreck and their churches are disillusioned. To realize that what I'm speaking about is not something, as some land in which when you become a clergyman you remove yourself from that. And I also remember my life as a student. I also remember as being a single man. And I have spent 12 years in listening to people tell me their story. Let me tell you. And you can do this on your own. You check the difference between Genesis 39 and 2 Samuel 11. Okay, Genesis 39 is the story of Joseph. 2 Samuel 11 is the story of David and Bathsheba. And ask yourself the question, where was the battle fought and lost? 
And the answer is it was fought and lost within their minds. And it was fought and won within their minds. And you see, it is in the area of our minds that we need to have control. That's why I don't want you to have some notion that I'm here to tell you about an oozy feeling in your stomach as being the key to spiritual fitness, because it isn't. What I'm saying is that spiritual fitness has a heartfelt dimension to it. But this is what controls the music we listen to. People say to me, I don't know, I, I saw the tapes in your car, Alistair, and I, 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 I don't know what you were listening to. Well, you say, what were you listening to? Well, I'm not going to tell you. No, I might have been listening to uh, Paul Simon's Graceland album. Because I like the song that was written for Betty Price and I in that, the title track. And I will call you Betty, and Betty, when you call me, you can call me Al. I, I like that song. I might be listening to a host of things, but the criteria that I use is Philippians 4. Whatsoever things are holy, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things, okay? So that controls my VCR. That controls my English literature reading. That controls my music. That's the control. It's an internal control. It's not somebody told me, you can't do this, you can't do that, and you can't do this. It is that within my heart, as I apply the principles of God's word, I say, this is out. No, but the Lord never ever turned the TV off for me. And people say to me, you know, I just read this book and, you know, I'm sure if the Lord didn't want me to read it, he would stop me. Think a real thought, would you? <laughs> I'm a ridiculous. Well, you think the Lord's going to intervene? He's got a lot of people to look after. I'm going to go throwing your paperbacks all over the airport. Oh, no. He gave the answer in here. It's all in here. Apply it. You quote Billy Graham. Remember Billy Graham's great statement? It's not the first look at a girl's legs that does the trouble. It's the second look. It's true. Got a word for you girls from John Stott. Basic Christianity, etc. It is one thing for you girls to make yourselves attractive. And it is another for you to make yourselves deliberately seductive. You girls know the difference. And so do we men. And I want to tell you that that matters a great deal. And as Christian brothers and sisters in a community like this, do not play fast and loose in the area of your sexuality. And the last thing is a convinced mind, a renewed mind, and a willing mind. First Chronicles 28, 9. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion. That's Monday. The devotion of my heart. And with a willing mind. That's Wednesday. They're both in there. Wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. I want to ask you, do you have a willing mind this morning? Do you have a willing mind? 
I was telling the, the seminary students that when I was 20 years old or 19 years old, I had the whole of my life written out on a sheet of paper. There was an American girl called Susan Jones that I was going to marry. There was a law degree that I was going to have. And I had picked out my car as well. I, today I don't have the law degree and I'm not driving that particular car, but I am married to Susan Jones. And of the three, I'm telling you, I got the best of the three. The Lord was very good. He might have given me the car and it would have rusted. He might have given me the law degree and so what? But he gave me Sue and she just gets better with age. But I never made a great step forward in my spiritual walk until first I got rid of that sheet with my life on it. And I, as it were, gave the Lord a clean sheet of paper with no demands and no obligations, just a willingness to be what he wanted me to be. I had one great fear, and that was the fear that he might make me a pastor. Because of all the things in the world I could think of at the age of 19, none had more ignominy attached to it than being a pastor. And look what he did to me. Do you have a willing mind? Are your hands open to receive what he has? Or are you so full holding on to all the bits and pieces that you can't take hold of that which he gives to you as he delights to give good gifts to his children? You've mandated so much, you hold so much, you wonder where the future lies. Let go of it, would you? Get away with God, take a walk this afternoon, go somewhere, get the sheet of paper out, tear it up, burn it, get the girl, whoever it is, the boy, the future, the degree, the strategy, and say, Lord, hey, it's your purpose, not mine. I want to reach the top for you. I want to be all that you want me to be. Let me finish with one illustration. I think I have a minute. Maybe a minute and a half. Stories told of a group of people that went climbing in the Swiss Alps. They're preparing for their ascent of Mont Blanc. Or Mont Blanc, if that's any more help to you. Anyway, they were going up that mountain. And the guide met with them and told them, If you make the ascent of this mountain with me, you do it my way. And I want you to know that you'll never make the top of this mountain unless you take only the bare essentials. I want you to have the right footwear, I want you to have an ice axe, I want you to have the ropes, and I want you to have the necessary supplies. But if you come in my group, you bring no clutter, no junk. A young Englishman announced to the guide in front of the group that he did not appreciate his approach and felt that it was possible to reach the top of the mountain with the things that he wanted to take. And so he said, I'll take what I like. And the guide said, then you'll go on your own. And the young man left the room in a spirit of disgust. And the guide said to the group, if we ever see that guy at the top of the mountain, believe me, he will not have the things with him that he thinks he's going to take. The young man set off on his own. He had blankets, he had cheese, he had telescopic lenses for his camera, he had big bars of chocolate, he had bottles of wine, he had every, every kind of nonsense with him. And way off ahead he went. As the other group came with the French guide up the mountainside, they started to come on all his junk. They found pieces of cheese and blankets and lenses and everything. And eventually they found the young man at the top 
but just holding what the guide told him he must have. That is a picture of the quest for spiritual fitness. Many young people, many people generally, when they find that they cannot reach the top with what you hold in your hands, you let the top go and you pitch your tent in the plain. And the plain is very full of tents. I don't question your devotion, but I'm asking you this morning, what about your mind? There was an old popular song that went like this, if you could read my mind, what a tale my thoughts would tell. Well, God can read your mind, and he knows your thoughts, and what you think is what you are. I look forward to seeing you on Friday morning. Let's just commit one another in prayer.